Well, good morning, VRBC, and welcome to week two of This Is My Story. We're working our way through the book of John and exploring the different encounters that people in the book of John had with Jesus. Now, sometimes if we think about introducing people to Jesus, if we're honest, if I'm honest, maybe we feel a little bit of anxiety, even dread. We don't want to be that pushy salesman or uh, get into a high-pressure debate or maybe be the bearer of bad news. But during this sermon series, we're on a mission to reclaim the word evangelism, which literally means good message. And so as we'll see over the coming weeks leading up to Easter, each person we study had a life-changing encounter with Jesus. We want to hear what good news they might share with us, how our story might resonate with their story, and we want to think about the effect that our good news stories might have on others. Last week, we saw Jesus' mind-blowing encounter with the once skeptical Nathaniel after he was introduced to Jesus by his friend Philip. Today, we're going to meet an esteemed rabbi and scholar named Nicodemus. Now, if Nathaniel was skeptical, we can say that Nicodemus was curious. And as we hear Nicodemus' story today, I want us to picture ourselves in Nicodemus' shoes. He had this holy curiosity, and I want us to sit with that for a moment, that he didn't have to have all the answers, as he once thought. How might this kind of holy curiosity help our understanding of and relationship with God? And how might it give us a more winsome witness to those around us? So as we hear Nicodemus's story in John chapter 3, we're going to learn how we can tap into the wisdom of Christ and the cross. So listen as I read John 3, 1 through 16. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Have you ever been to a church not this one, but some other church, where every pew has this little register book and you pass it down the row and everyone signs their names. Once there was a Christian in England who was asked to sign a church register like this. 
It was his first time at the church, and he wanted to make sure he was doing it correctly, so he quickly scanned the other names on the list. And he noticed that a number of the guests had listed letters after their names to indicate their degrees. He wanted to put some letters after his name, but he had never been to college. So after a bit of thought, he wrote John Smith, B-A and M-A. Someone further down the row later asked him what the letters meant, and he replied, born again and marvelously altered. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Nicodemus was the kind of guy who would have had a lot of letters after his name. But he learns that all of this scholarly learning isn't what's really needed to enter the kingdom of God. Just like this John Smith guy, he needs to be born again and marvelously altered. So how does Nicodemus the teacher become Nicodemus the student? If Nicodemus were sharing his story with us, I think the first thing he might say is that when he initially approaches Jesus... He had a lot to lose. See, Nicodemus is a man of power and influence. He's achieved success and a lot of respect as a religious leader. He's a member of probably the most serious and scholarly branch of the faith in Jesus' time, called the Pharisees. This is the same branch that the Apostle Paul was part of. You may remember that the Pharisees were really zealous for the law. They had little patience or tolerance for religious troublemakers. And in fact, they'd had their eye on Jesus for a while now, as he attracted crowds of unruly and unrespectable people. And they were looking for a way to put an end to this disruption. So Nicodemus is the last person that you'd expect to be intrigued by Jesus. Is there anybody in your life like that? Maybe somebody that you've written off? Maybe it's a difficult boss, or a mean girl at school, an aloof neighbor, an adult child that wants nothing to do with church. Maybe you think it's too late for them. They're never going to turn to Jesus. But you never know where Jesus is at work in the hidden places of their hearts, where Jesus is overcoming their resistance. There was something in Jesus' words and in Jesus' way that drew Nicodemus in. It wasn't that Jesus' speech was intellectually elite In fact, Jesus had a way of sharing complex truths in a way that people could relate to and understand. He was a master storyteller, and his words filled Nicodemus with a sense of holy wonder. And it wasn't just Jesus' words that inspired Nicodemus. Jesus' behavior was strangely compelling, too. The first thing that got people talking was when Jesus turned water into wine at a friend's wedding. Jesus wasn't the spoil sport that... Uh, Some people sometimes make him out to be. He knew how to celebrate and how to have a good time. And then there was that spectacle in the temple. Jesus was acting deranged, driving out money changers, throwing coins, turning over tables. He was muttering some nonsense about rebuilding the table in just three, temple, in just three days. And then there were other signs too. Miracles that hinted that Jesus wasn't just your run-of-the-mill street preacher. There were rumors that maybe Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, but surely the Savior of Israel would be more dignified, more intellectual, more Jewish, more like Nicodemus. Now, as bizarre as this all was, there was some kind of magnetism to Jesus that just drew Nicodemus in. And getting involved with Jesus could be dangerous for his position, for his reputation, 
There was so much at stake, so much he could lose. And as much as Nicodemus tried to dismiss it, to dismiss him, he had to see for himself. So verse 2 tells us he came to Jesus at night. I'm curious why Nicodemus made this visit at night. Was he ashamed? Afraid of criticism? Was he simply looking for privacy? Did he simply appreciate the risk to himself and even to Jesus? Whatever his motives, Jesus assigns no blame, but really seems to go out of his way to accommodate Nicodemus and create an opportunity for conversation. Many times in scripture, we're told that God honors those with a holy curiosity. Does that describe you? Are you spiritually hungry? Matthew 5 says that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. Are you earnestly seeking? Hebrews 11 says that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And we just prayed this a moment ago in song, open up my eyes in wonder. God doesn't demand life change first, but meets people right where they are. And because Nicodemus is a biblical scholar, Jesus will use lots of references from the Old Testament. So we'll point these out as we hear the rest of their conversation. Nicodemus begins with what he knows. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. In other words, you're no ordinary street preacher. God is clearly speaking through you. And he goes on, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God was not with him. Nicodemus is a keen observer of what God is doing in and through the life of Jesus. And so although Nicodemus is widely known as an esteemed teacher, here the teacher becomes the student. This is a good reminder for me that long before I can detect spiritual interest in someone, chances are high they've been watching for signs of spiritual life. For most people, seeing Jesus at work in and through the lives of Jesus' followers is the first impression they'll have of Jesus. Now, unfortunately, the opposite is also true. Jesus said that the world will know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. And when we claim to be his disciples, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, but have not love, we are but a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Thankfully, Nicodemus had been watching Jesus himself. And so what he saw in Jesus was so attractive, so compelling, that it overcame his resistance. But even as we see Jesus generously extending this high invitation to Nicodemus, Jesus issues a high challenge as well. And in fact, if Nicodemus were sharing his story, I think he would say next that he had a lot to learn. The first words out of Jesus' mouth are like this intellectual bombshell. Nicodemus has essentially begun the conversation with a compliment, acknowledging not quite that Jesus is the Messiah, but at least that he's a prophet sent from God. And I wonder if Nicodemus was expecting Jesus to return the compliment, to say what an honor it was to meet such an esteemed teacher of Israel. But despite all of Jesus, uh, sorry, despite all of Nicodemus's qualifications, Jesus completely ignores the compliment without returning one. I imagine that although this must have startled Nicodemus, he could sense the love and the urgency in Jesus' eyes as he cut straight to the chase of Nicodemus's need. You see, Nicodemus knew that he was missing something. His whole life had been this one long striving to check all the right boxes, born in the right kind of family, raised in the synagogue, went to the right school, joined the right sect, worked his way up into the top echelons of leadership. And it wasn't just about accomplishments. Nicodemus was a good person, 
a devout Jew, a serious student of the scriptures, a patient and wise teacher. But none of these things had produced that dependable, authentic, credible pathway to a vibrant relationship with God. There was this emptiness that grew inside of Nicodemus, an awareness that no matter how hard he tried, there was something in him that was spiritually dead. So Jesus' words cut straight through his accomplishments and credentials to the heart of the matter. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. I picture Nicodemus reeling, kind of faltering backward a little bit, mouth aghast. This was not at all the religious and philosophical conversation that he was expecting. He was hoping Jesus was going to give him some sort of superior knowledge. He just needed to make a few improvements to the way he was living out the scriptures. Maybe some minor adjustments to the way he was approaching God. But what was Jesus talking about? Born again? This was foolishness. See, Nicodemus, I think, had never been comfortable with mysteries. He liked to have everything sorted out and logical. Anybody else like that? All of life's questions had an answer. Every scripture had an explanation. In fact, Nicodemus was equipped with more answers than your average person. The rabbis had this sort of religious encyclopedia called the Talmud, an ancient set of constantly expanding writing that explained and commented on the scriptures and how to apply Jewish law to everyday life. But in this case, for Nicodemus, all of that knowledge didn't amount to much. It still left this empty void, this feeling of lifelessness that was gnawing inside of him. And Jesus wasn't answering the questions in his mind with some new religious interpretation. He's transforming Nicodemus's way of thinking. Jesus is saying, it's not something you can learn, but starting life all over again, what is Jesus talking about? How is that even possible? Nicodemus sputtered back, how can someone be born when they're old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. See, Nicodemus is trying to figure out how to make this happen. See these words, can, cannot, he wants the instructions. Let's give him a how-to. He doesn't mind working hard towards something. That's been his whole life's ethic. But he was struck with the sheer impossibility of it. Nicodemus quickly hits at the truth, amount of, the truth of it. No amount of human effort can accomplish this. This is a deep, divine change. It's not something we can make happen. This is a transformation into a whole new creature. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.17 sums it up pretty well. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. Spiritual deadness can only be transformed by spiritual life. Frederick Dale Bruner said that this newborn spiritual life is not about what you must do, but about what you must become. Not about what you must do, but about what you must become. You must give up your old life and become a whole new person. This isn't something we can do on our own, a change that we can manage if we just try hard enough. This is something that happens to us. It's a process that we can only go undergo if we're willing, if we yield ourselves to it. And God is the sole agent in making it happen. Nicodemus' story reminds me a bit of my parents' story. They both grew up attending church. And their parents were involved in church in different ways. 
My Grammy was a piano player. My grandma went on a mission trip uh, to Latin America. But for my parents at that age, it was something you do. It wasn't something you become. So when they got married and my dad was in the Navy, they were invited to a Bible study by his commanding officer. And they went, not because it was a Bible study, but because it was his commanding officer. (laughs) And eventually, somebody in the Bible study invited my parents to volunteer with their church youth group. So they did. And it was at a youth conference not long after that that both of my parents independently realized that they were missing something vitally important. Like Nicodemus, they were checking what they thought were all the right religious boxes. But they needed that spiritual rebirth that only comes from Christ. And both of them gave their lives to Jesus at that conference. The old was gone, the new has come. Now my parents and Nicodemus learned that their old way of thinking about life in God's kingdom was faulty. It's not something you can inherit from your parents. It's not something you can enter by osmosis from growing up in the church. Jesus transformed Nicodemus's thinking to show him that life in God's kingdom is starting over, life in a whole new dimension. So what happens after this spiritual rebirth? How are things different? I think Nicodemus would tell us he had a lot to live. When we're born again into the kingdom of God, our life begins to look very different than it did before. In verse 5, Jesus describes this new birth as one of water and spirit. Our passage doesn't say this, but I wonder if Nicodemus had some idea of what this was all about. I would guess that water probably reminded Nicodemus of Jesus' cousin John, who was baptizing people in the Jordan River. His main focus was our need for cleansing from sin. Then I imagine that Nicodemus must have remembered the old passage from the prophet Ezekiel. I'll sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Now Nicodemus was beginning to understand. Jesus transforms our lives by taking away all of the dead parts, washing away the gangrene of sin, and giving us a new heart and a new spirit. Nicodemus may be somewhat advanced in years, but he had a rich and full life just waiting to be lived. You know, the Bible's words for spirit and wind are the same word. It's the Hebrew word ruach in the Old Testament and the Greek word pneuma in the New Testament. And when the Spirit takes over, Jesus said, it's like the wind. It's not something we can manipulate or control. We don't see it. We don't know where it comes from or where it's going, but we can feel its effects. We've had a windy week this week, right? Last weekend, I was sitting in my backyard, and I could feel the wind starting to pick up. And I was getting a little irritated because it was messing up my hair. And so then it hit me, though. We can't cause the wind to blow. We can't bring about the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. The wind blows wherever it pleases. But if I had gone inside, I wouldn't have felt the wind's effects anymore. It would have taken a tornado, which almost happened, to yank me out of the comfort of my house. I think in the same way, we can refuse to allow the Spirit access to our lives. But when we yield ourselves to God, we're in a place where God's Spirit can blow and do its work of transforming our lives. Now, understandably, Nicodemus is still a little bit puzzled by it all. He wants God to do this kind of active transformation in his life. But God in heaven seems so far away 
so distant, so hard to access. And in verse 13, Jesus tells Nicodemus that there is no other bridge to heaven, no other access to God. I wonder if Nicodemus' mind races through the stories, ones from scripture he knows so well, trying to find a way. Maybe he remembers the old story about the Tower of Babel, where people tried to build this great tower into heaven, but it ended in a pile of rubble. Or maybe he was thinking about the story that Pastor Larry mentioned last week about Jacob's ladder going up to heaven. I wonder if Nicodemus had that same realization of Nathaniel, that Jesus was the only ladder to heaven. And then in verse 14, Jesus reminds Nicodemus of this peculiar passage from the book of Numbers, where hordes of venomous snakes attacked the grumbling Israelites in their desert wanderings. And many of them died. When Moses cried out to God for relief, God told Moses to form this bronze snake and to put it up on a pole so that anyone who looked to the bronze snake would live. And as strange as this story is, the image of a snake wrapped around a pole is still a widespread symbol of healing in the world today. Maybe you've seen it on different medical organizations or pharmacies. And some people trace the origin of this story all the way back to numbers. Just as the snake hoisted up on the pole became a sign of rescue and life for the Israelites, Jesus says, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus himself is the son of God and son of man, the only one who can bridge the gap from heaven to earth. And this son of man will be lifted up on the cross to bring healing and rescue to our sin-sick, spiritually dead souls. Now, I don't understand how the snake in the desert worked or why God chose such a pagan symbol, so often a symbol of evil, to be the Israelites' rescue in the wilderness. And to be honest, there's a lot I still don't understand about the cross and why God chose this pagan method of torture and execution to be the way that God chose to redeem the brokenness of this world. But as Jesus makes clear to Nicodemus, this is not something that we can do on our own. The only way to have our life transformed by God's spirit is through faith in the one who is lifted up on the cross. This new life, this eternal life that Jesus promises is not just quantitatively longer, as we so often think, but it's qualitatively richer. It's this abundant, full life where God's presence is always with us and God's spirit is constantly guiding us and shaping us in the way of Jesus. Now what follows the verses that we just read is not an ending to Nicodemus' story. We don't get a window into his heart to see all the ways that this conversation with Jesus transformed his life. John 6, 3, 16 is perhaps the most memorized verse of scripture, which tells us that this transformed life that Jesus offers is available to everyone because of God's great love for us. It tells us that God sent Jesus to lead us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light from condemnation to salvation. And if we're to hear Nicodemus share his story, I think he would say that over time, this is where Jesus led him to. We get a few more glimpses of Nicodemus in the later chapters of the book of John. In chapter seven, we see that he spoke up and defended Jesus to the other Pharisees. He chose loyalty to Jesus, even at the risk of his own reputation and position. And our final impression of Nicodemus is one of, who was fully devoted to Jesus. Jesus had overcome his resistance, transformed his thinking, 
and over time, transformed his life. That seed of faith that started in this midnight conversation with Jesus took root and grew, producing new life and spiritual fruit. See, in John chapter 19, Nicodemus, together with Joseph of Arimathea, lovingly and tenderly took Jesus' broken body down from the cross, wrapped it in linen and precious spices that Nicodemus himself had purchased and brought, and laid him in a new tomb. This is the very last scene in John's gospel before Easter morning dawns, and the women discover that the tomb is now empty. The sculptor Michelangelo struggled with sin and with doubt his entire life. But as he approached death, a spiritual rebirth began to occur. One of his final projects was a sculpture of Nicodemus, as, uh, together with Mary Magdalene and Jesus' own mother, Mary, holding the dead body of Jesus. Notice the tenderness that you see in his face, the look of devotion to Jesus. Michelangelo had intended for this to be his own gravestone. And if you compare the face of Nicodemus with the face of Michelangelo that you see in his other self-portraits, you'll see that he has painted, pictured Nicodemus as himself. Do you picture yourself like Michelangelo as Nicodemus? Maybe you feel like you have a lot to lose or a lot to learn. Maybe you thought you were doing all the right things, but you realize that you have a lot of life to live a fuller, richer life that comes from being born again of water and spirit. If Nicodemus were to share his story, I think he would say, let down your resistance. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Jesus offers us the wisdom that comes only from Christ, the wisdom of the cross. May we have the humility to learn from him and to receive the transformed life he offers. This is my story. Will you pray together with me? Lord Jesus, help us to realize how much we have to learn yet. Lord, would you instill in us the same sense of holy curiosity that seemed to fill Nicodemus. Lord, may it be true of us that we pray, open up my eyes with wonder. Lord, would you help each one of us to remember that faith in you that this kingdom life that you offer is not about what we do, but about who we are becoming. Lord, would you help us to live this richer, full life that comes from following Jesus. And Lord, may the life that we live bring glory to you and may it inspire others to live with this same holy curiosity as well. It's in the powerful name of Jesus we pray, amen.